You're listening to We, we, we the Aether Podcast, within and without. Welcome. Eugene, thank you for taking the time to have this conversation today. I really appreciate it. I think a lot of people are going to benefit from a lot of the information you have to share. Uh, and just to kick things off, for anyone who's not familiar with your content, they can get brought up to speed. Do you mind just introducing yourself briefly? Yeah. Um, thanks for, honestly, thanks for having me on the show. I know you're busy, so I appreciate being a guest. Um, yeah, so the background in terms of how it relates to this show is, um, like, I grew up on an off-grid biodynamic farm in Ukraine. And uh, basically, I moved here when I was around, like, 10 or 11. And um, right now, I'm dividing my time between Texas and California, and I'm, like, a fat loss uh, holistic health coach. Very cool. And uh, what, uh, what got you into, into holistic health as a whole? Like, what, what kind of sparked your interest in getting involved in that? Yeah, well, my dad got me into working out when I was like five. Uh, he was like a big time wrestler in like Bulgaria. Well, back then it was like the Soviet Union still. It was all like one country. And so he got me into working out at five. And uh, honestly, it's just one of those things like I never had to like find motivation to do. I always just like loved working out and like living, a, you know, like a health conscious lifestyle, sleeping well, steam rooms, my favorite, eating like high quality sourced food. Uh, even if I had another job, it would be like the thing I would just look forward to doing uh, all the time. So, um, so that's, I just, it's just one of those unconditional, unconditional loves for me. Mm, that's really cool. So your dad got you into like exercise one out of five. That, I mean, I wish personally, I wish I got involved that early. Like by the time I started exercising seriously outside of, you know, general sports stuff, I think I was in like my twenties when I started into actual weightlifting and powerlifting related things. So gotcha. Um, what were you doing at an early age? What type of exercise and movements were you doing from, from such a young age? Well, uh, mainly just working the farm. Uh, you grew up, I grew up on the off-grid biodynamic farm. It's not like we had a 24-hour fitness right across the street. So we didn't have electricity even until like 1992 or 1993. So mm-hmm. it's kind of one of these like old, old school communities. Um, so it's just, I guess, natural fitness, you know, like moving animals around, fixing stuff, just moving your body around, stuff of that sort, not any kind of like uh, physical fitness activities, running, climbing rocks, all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, being, and being a kid, really. It's, it's, that's actually like the best way, I suppose, to, to get involved is like functional movement and functional uh, type of training in that sense. At what point did you transition into actual like weightlifting with, with actual like gym weights and stuff like that? And, and do you focus more on like a bodybuilding type of modality or, or a training style? Or is it more on the strength uh, training side, like powerlifting and strongman? Yeah, so right now I'm, I just do fitness. I don't like lift like way too heavy. I don't lift like way too light. Just kind of moreover, I guess like aesthetics would be the goal just to kind of maintain your aesthetics and just maintain your energy and feel good throughout the day. Um, I used to do like uh, more like uh, mixed mountain climbing and weightlifting back in the day, but now it's just mainly I kind of built an at-home, small at-home gym. So I've just been using that all the time. It's really nice to just like wake up and uh, it's pretty basic. I mean, uh, like four to five days a week, just the basic, very basic lifts, probably the stuff you concentrate on, uh, you know, pull-ups, the flat bench, uh, I like doing the hex bar deadlift versus like the barbell deadlift, for example, uh, stuff of that sort. So it's nothing too elaborate, just like very consistent. And then also trying to master a lot of the lifestyle variables, you know, like you talk a lot about in a few of your podcasts or you're a guest on, you know, living close to your core values, um, eating well, not working like super crazy hours, et cetera, et cetera. So that stuff. Mm-hmm. And for you, what, what encompasses eating well as a whole, if you were to just break it down? Yeah, so that kind of flows in into, I guess, like the topic of, of this podcast and uh, basically to kind of rewind a little bit. Uh, so I grew up on an off-grid biodynamic farm in Ukraine. And for your listeners that, uh, that don't know what biodynamic farming is, it's probably like the mental image they have in their mind's eye of what they think of a farm should look like. So it's basically, you have like these open pastures, you have like a myriad of animals, uh, you know, ducks, geese, cows, whatever, uh, chicken running around just freely outside in the grass, uh, small family units uh, kind of living in this self-sustaining ecosystem. So that's kind of like generally what biodynamic farming is. 
And I kind of grew up in that environment. And then when I moved to the U.S. and I went to, for example, like Costco for the first time, I just thought like everyone farmed that way. I didn't even bother to, to question that practice. I thought like no one, I didn't even know what bi synthetic biocides were, you know, like fungicides, pesticides, herbicides, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, or like what a confined factory farmed operation was. I thought just everyone raised their animals outside and just let them roam free in their natural environment. So when I went to Costco and I see like 50 eggs for like $1.99, I'm like, man, the U.S. has definitely mastered biodynamic farming. And this is why everyone wants to come to this country, you know, because I just thought, I mean, from the outside perspective, these eggs, those eggs, uh, or organic crops versus non-organic crop, they kind of look all the same. So I didn't even bother to question, to question the food production practices. And just for years and years and years, I bought, um, you know, the cheapest stuff you can find at Costco, uh, et cetera, et cetera, not even thinking twice about it. And then maybe at this point, four years ago, or maybe even five years ago, I ran into uh, a video on YouTube titled like nutrition, the dirt facts. And it was hosted. Um, it was presented rather by Paul check. So uh, for your listeners who don't know who he is, he's like kind of like a world renowned holistic health expert. And uh, he basically talks a lot about promoting biodynamic farming or organic farming practices versus factory farm practices. And then after that video, I kind of, I guess, like woke up from the matrix, you know, like, quote, unquote, the matrix, and then realized that there is something dramatically different with the food production practices that are happening in the US versus like how we did it on that off grid biodynamic farm in Ukraine. And um, that's actually where all the confusion began. So even for I, I understand, like a lot of people don't really care about their health, as sad it is to say it, they don't care about their health. And they're always going to buy like the cheapest food available. They're just looking for that, for, for that deal. But even for kind of like, you know, for example, people like you or your audience members that are actually on average more health conscious or like extremely health conscious, uh, it is still extremely confusing and difficult to source high quality food in the U.S., even when that's your intention. So just for like a quick example, let's say one of your listeners uh, decides to change their health around, you know, they don't like their energy levels, they don't like how they look or how they feel, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, and they hire, like a registered dietitian. And uh, among a myriad of things that registered dietitian tells the person like, Oh, make sure you're sourcing, you know, grass fed beef. Okay, so that's fair enough. That's like great advice, you know, like, not very many people are going to argue that. And but let's go ahead and go down the steps of like the actual application of this advice. So the advice is great, but now let's see how effective it is to apply it in a U.S. market. So the person goes like, okay, excuse me. Okay, so I need grass-fed beef. 99% uh, of them are going to go like right to the supermarket. And before I go into the details of what's going on there, so they're going to see the grass-fed label and kind of buy that, that beef. But what the listener needs to understand is, uh, all cattle are grass-fed, like all cattle are grass-fed. Like basically during a production cycle, like 80% of the cattle's life is spent on pasture eating grass and other forage. So, and then usually during that last 20% of its life, like 99% of them are probably sent to a feedlot where they're grain finished. So when you see the phrase grass-fed, it really doesn't say anything unique. It doesn't say anything different because all cattle are grass-fed. And the rancher or the company that's producing that meat isn't lying to you. It is grass-fed. But what they're not telling you, what they're not finishing in the sentences is grain finished. And what happens when you finish uh, cattle on grain or rather feed an animal a non-species-specific diet like cattle are herbivores, they should be eating just grass and other forage, alfalfa, et cetera, et cetera, is a couple of things. So first, the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio uh, pretty much gets ruined. So typically in a grain finished operation, you get a higher ratio of omega-6 to omega-3. Uh, the LA is in the seed of the grain, uh, and the LA is in omega-6, and it's converted to AA, which is a potent anti-inflammatory after it's digested by the animal. And basically, once again, it shoots the omega-6 higher in relation to omega-3. And uh, 
basically omega-6 is an inflammatory micronutrient for your audience members. Uh, like if they look up the inflammation theory of disease, they'll see like pretty much 98 plus percent of disease arises from low-grade chronic inflammation. Inflammation can happen obviously from a myriad of reasons. So low-grade chronic stress is one of the big ones. Uh, relationship issues, overtraining. But one of the big pillars is from a diet that's high in omega-6 as well. So once again, this person is going into the store. Their intention is to improve their health. They're buying that meat. They're thinking they're getting that superior quality, but they're getting, you know, like a higher, most likely a higher omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. And then uh, some people would also say like, oh, well, my my uh, beef says, it says grass-fed and grass-finished. Well, the thing is with all the grass-fed labels in the U.S., it's like not a, not a regulated term. There's basically no on-site inspections required legally whatsoever. So as a rancher, I could just, I could do a couple of things. So one, I could feed my cattle grass for like eight months, put them on grain for like four to five months, finishing them, finish them on grass for like two weeks, and still sell it as grass-fed and grass-finished. And I'm not lying. It is really finished with grass for those last two weeks. But I didn't tell you that I supplemented heavily with grain to bulk up the weight of the animal so I could sell the animal for a higher price because the industry is on a pound-per-pound -pound basis. It's not on like a quality metric. Uh, and then another thing is I could just not, not feed them grass at the end. There's no on-site inspections whatsoever. No one's going to check. And if the market... Uh, is like aggressive and I need to produce this meat and I'm lacking behind and the grocery stores are going to take my company down and work with someone else that could produce those quantities. I'll be incentivized to do that as well, just to stay in business. Because most likely I don't have like a, another job I can go to. You know, it's not like a computer science person loses one job. They can probably easily go to another company. If a rancher loses their operation, they lose their land. It's pretty much what they've been doing probably for like 20 or 30 years. They have no other like kind of job to get into um and then another issue is like sometimes it says like 100 like a person would say like oh but it says eugene it says 100 grass fed so that's it there's no question about it well uh i could do a few things in that operation as well so i can send my cattle to a feedlot at the end feed them grass pellets it might not necessarily change the nutritional profile of that omega-3 to omega-6 but depending on how the uh how the pellets were produced that could increase the toxic load of the meat. But anyway, I can finish them in a feedlot uh, on grass pellets and still, it's still 100% grass fed. And I'm not going to be lying to you. And that actually, that actually happened to me. I was buying meat at a grocery store that said 100% grass fed for like a year. And uh, one day I just decided to give, give the company a call. And I'm like, oh, you know, can you describe your operations to me and they didn't lie they're like yeah we send them to a feedlot at the end and we just feed them grass pellets but on their packaging they have this like open pasture you know like the cattle are just running around on endless amount of territory etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh and so just to give you a quick synopsis of like how confusing it's begun it's it's become to source like something as easy as high quality beef for example and then sometimes um I've been on a few shows and they're like, well, um, Eugene, you know, the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, sure, the ratio isn't that ideal, but the total quantity of omega-6 isn't that great. And I, from that perspective, I could say, well, it could be because, it, because most Americans' diets are so poor and they're kind of like extremely overworked. I mean, literally go step outside like anywhere anywhere in america these days nine out of ten people you run into are like full of obesity and disease like full of mental and physical pain that one little difference in their nutritional profile could be kind of like the straw that breaks the camel's back kind of mentality you know because they're already on the verge of like health collapse energy collapse etc cetera, etc cetera. and then also another thing is if the cattle are finished in a feedlot, whenever you kind of cram animals into a concentrated environment, what happens is first three things. One, they're stressed because obviously of that extreme amounts of crowding. Two, if you crowd animals in an environment, you get a lot of fecal buildup. So you get a lot of bacteria and viruses. Three, a lot of the vaccines actually given to these animals to keep them alive, uh, basically cause chronic inflammation in the animals as well. So low-grade chronic stress from overcrowding, 
sometimes even high grade, that's going to cause chronic stress. The bacteria buildup, that's going to cause chronic stress. And then certain vaccines cause uh, chronic inflammation in the animal as well. When you combine those three, what happens is the animal's liver starts secreting too much serum amyloid A proteins. And in moderate or low amounts, it's actually okay. And it's a soluble protein. It gets broken down by the body and it's fine. But in excess amounts, which, you, which happen in these confined operations, you get excessive amount of serum amyloid A proteins being produced. And some of those break up into amyloid A proteins, which are insoluble. And they begin to form around, they begin to form kind of like as plaque around different organ systems of the animal and also to a smaller extent in the muscle tissue of the animal as well. So I haven't honestly been able to find for sure like any human feeding studies where it shows that people that ate this kind of meat also developed AA amyloids in their body. But I have been able to find numerous mice feeding studies that mice given uh, meat tainted with AA amyloids started to develop AA amyloids in their system. And the sy symptoms could vary uh, depending on which organ is affected. And a lot of times it's systemic because multiple organs are affected. So the systems are, symptoms are very complicated and wide range. But it could range from something as extreme as Alzheimer's to also uh, something as bad as like type 2 diabetes, joint issues, gut issues, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the symptoms are, are very wide. So you have like you have that problem as well. And then if they're, they're in a feedlot environment, then obviously you have, um, they're being fed grains. Uh, most likely those grains are GMO sourced. Even if they're not GMO sourced, they're most likely conventionally grown. So you have a myriad of different synthetic biocides now present in that grain, which then the cattle end up eating, which then end up being present in the organs and the muscle tissue of that cattle. And like the average American, for example, these days, the average newborn American in an inner city these days is born with already trace amounts of 200 different chemicals in their bloodstream. So you don't need to have like an advanced peer-reviewed study to, to show that having that amount of trace amounts of chemicals in your body at any given time brewing there is probably not the best for your health and wellness long-term. So... So just to give you like a quick overview of how confusing it's, begun, it's kind of become to source like even something as simple as like, look, man, I just want high quality beef. And you can see like it took me personally like two years of research to actually know where to, where to buy this, this high quality beef. Um, so for example, like uh, I volunteered at a cattle ranch near my house, uh, five bar beef, and it's like legit 100% uh, grass-fed operation. Uh, the guy doesn't even use any vaccines. He's been doing it already for like 35 years and he's bred cattle from day one and the ones that couldn't survive in that environment, they just died off and the ones that could ended up living on and reproducing cattle that are like immune to anything going on in that environment. That's how he's able to get away with not using, not using any vaccines or medicines on the animals. Uh, doesn't even clip his bulls, so the testosterone content is higher in the meat also. And they just roam free outside on pasture 24-7. And uh, so that's what I was looking for from day one, you know. But it's so rare. It's so rare to find, like, those kind of operations in the U.S. So Yeah, it uh, sounds like a needle in a haystack. So how, how do you think it got to that point? Because obviously, you know, even coming from where you came from back home, you know, everything was more grass-fed, like truly grass-fed, free-roaming. How, how do you think it got to the point where now everything is kind of crammed into these small spaces where these animals are, are just being poorly treated, and then that's completely transitioning to the human population upon consumption? I mean, what do you think got it there? And, and do, you, do you know, like, which year in particular that there was some sort of major shift in that direction? Yeah, there's actually a really good book on the history of factory farming called... Uh, the meat, mart, or, uh, the meat Racket by um, Christopher Leonard, I believe. It's been a while since I read the book. But basically, the factory farm was created by two American guys, two American business guys, John and Don Tyson back in, I believe, like 1950 or 1955. So before that age, like everything in America was like pasture raised uh, straight from farm to family. There was no like middleman like supermarket or processing uh, processor, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like you go to the farmer, 
they sell you the stuff directly and that's the transaction and that's it. So then Don and John Tyson came around and they created the factory farmed model. And it's, it runs kind of like on vertical integration. And uh, vertical integration is basically how it operates is like, let's say you're the chicken farmer and I'm uh, Tyson Foods, which is the huge corporation that Don and uh, John Tyson invented. And I come to you and I'm like, okay, Adam, so I know you're a chicken farmer and I'm looking uh, for someone to basically raise chickens for me. So I will show up on the first of every month. I'll drop off like 50,000 hens and you're just responsible uh, to raise them to my standards. So basically if I say, you know, you need to feed them GMO grains and not feed them a species specific diet, you need to do that. If I say you need to give them these vaccines and medicines, you need to do that. If I say you need to keep them indoors and not allow them to go run outside, you need to do that as well. And in exchange, I'll take care of like all the marketing, all the legal stuff. I have all the veterinarians. I have all the trucks. Plus I have the multi-million dollar slaughter facilities, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I have all the contracts with the grocery stores. Like literally all you have to do is just grow these 50,000 chickens every month and then I'll stop by at the end of the month or at the end of six or eight weeks. That's typically how long it takes to grow them and pick them up and you get the money and that's it. So it's that simple. So it's, so it's very tempting for the farmer because all of a sudden you lose like all your responsibilities and you get kind of like, quote unquote, like a guaranteed paycheck. You know what I mean? It's like a lot less stressful than having to deal with all that other stuff that the farmer may not be good at at all. And um, so usually the farmer does agree because it's, it's tempting to do that. And most likely they're already not making that much money anyways. Uh, and then once they agree, Tyson Foods would go like, oh, okay, so, okay, perfect. Uh, so we'll do business. But the problem is, is your facility can't house like 50,000 hens or more. So what we need you to do is go to the bank, but we have already a contract with the bank. So if we send you, they're going to give you the loan. Like even if you have like bad credit or et cetera, et cetera, they're just going to give you the loan. Uh, but you need to take a loan out for about like 200,000, 250,000, which is like super crazy money for this farmer and probably for the uh, majority of Americans. And once they take that loan out, that's it, you know? they're indebted to this, to this one company and they're basically enslaved because there are maybe two or three other companies like that in all of the United States because of the deep consolidation. Basically, John and Don Tyson with the factory farm model put almost every single farm, small farmer out of business in the US. So now there's like basically three or four big players in the poultry industry. And if it doesn't work out with one of the guys, what they do is they blacklist you from being able to do business with the other ones. So that's how the other ones keep the farmers in check as well. So they kind of work together. So you're basically, you have, now you have to pay back this $200,000 loan, uh, et cetera. And then, so you basically, and you, you can't find another job and you basically have to do what they tell you at that point. And um, I kind of lost my train of thought. So you basically have to do, uh, uh, to do what they do at that point. And the reason the bank is okay with giving out that loan and the, because of the majority of uh, farmers do go out of business eventually is because if they can't pay it back, what happens is the bank collects the land from the farmer, all the, uh, all the tools, all the machinery, et cetera, et cetera, sells it back to Tyson foods, which is how all this consolidation happened. Tyson foods then takes over the operation. The farmer gets booted out and the difference of what the bank can't collect on selling everything back, they get back from the taxpayer. So as you can see, it's kind of more of like, kind of like uh, Dan Kittredge would say, uh, like a fascist type business model, where you have government funneling money into private enterprise, and then this private enterprise profiting from it. You know, it's not like a free market, because you have like this pasture raised operation guy that's not getting any grain subsidies because he's feeding his animals a species specific diet not getting any money but then you have this guy that's having a factory farmed environment that's basically uh, this larger topic too but like destroying the environment through monocropping that's required to grow these like hundreds and thousands of acres of corn and soy to feed these animals uh, because in a in a factory farmed environment when you have a lot of confinement the food has to come to the animals where in a pasture-raised environment, you take the animals to the food. Because like, for instance, with cattle, you rotate them onto different pastures so they eat the grass. And by the time they 
roll around to that first pasture, it's already been like many months or a year, and then it's already grown again, and they, you just repeat that cycle. But with the factory farm environment, they just have to import a lot of grain. And the other thing is with these grains, uh, those are also subsidized. So with, in, a, in, a meat in a meat business, for example, 80% of a cost to a business comes from the feed to the animal, which is grains. And grains are subsidized once again by the taxpayer as well. So you can see you're getting these loan bailouts by the taxpayer, 80% of the basic, basically business expense being subsidized by the taxpayer. And the only way these factory farm models are able to operate, and they operate on small profit margins already, is simply because of taxpayer bailouts. That's it. If those taxpayer bailouts disappeared, they wouldn't be able to operate that business anymore. You know, so it's kind of like basically held up artificially by the, by the U.S. taxpayer. And the, the thing that happens is like with the consumer, they go into the grocery store and they see beef, ground beef for like four bucks a pound, for example. But really, it's like six, six or seven bucks a pound because it's like your tax dollars that are being used to suppress that price. Do you know what I mean? So you're already kind of like you're paying more than you're seeing on the label. And the person thinks they're getting like a deal. That's like, oh, four bucks a pound, three bucks a pound, whatever. But because your money is already being used to suppress that price. And you can get like the highest, you can get super high quality ground beef from a legit pasture raised operation for like $8 a pound. So at that point, if you take away the subsidies, you just pay like one more dollar and you get like a far superior nutritional profile food without all the beta agonist, the steroids, the myriad of vaccines, the amyloids, uh, the poor omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, the poor micronutrient ratio, et cetera, et cetera. So, and it makes a huge difference because sometimes I used to give grocery store tours quite a bit to teach people about food production practices. And sometimes people would come up to me and they would say like, oh, I've been eating this factory farm food my whole life and I'm doing just fine. Meanwhile, the guy's like, 30% body fat on like two or three different prescription medications, you know? So it's like, it, it does really make like a huge, huge impact on your mental and physical health, like 100%. And I'm glad so, you mentioned that the prescription side of it as well, because I feel that there's some, it kind of ties in with that as well. With the, and, and I'm sure that there's a lot of lobbying happening with, with companies like Tyson Foods and whatnot, trying to uh, give money to the government so they ensure that this whole house of cards stays up. That's exactly what it sounds yeah. like the way you're describing it. It sounds like it's just, it's completely held together on nothing. Uh, and, and it's mostly, I would say, due to a lack of education to the population. And really, and I, I'm a marketing guy, but really like well done marketing campaigns mm -hmm. uh, and product branding and, uh, you know, slogans and this and that, that kind of deter people from even investigating further because they feel this false sense of confidence. So uh, it's a crazy, crazy idea. And, and I think it does tie in with pharmaceutical as well, because it seems like, the population then just gets drained because they have to go and get these medications to compensate for the fact that they have a poor diet uh, and poor nutrition. Um, so I think, I think the whole thing is just absolutely crazy. And, and it's nuts that you mentioned sometime in the fifties that this really kind of took a turn for the worse. It seems like that is when a lot of things took a turn for the worse. So sometime around the fifties, especially when it comes to, to medicines and, and whatnot, when things were shifted away from being, uh, they were called alternative, medicines as opposed to being they are the natural original true medicines like chinese mm -hmm. herbs things like this but all of a sudden that became alternative and getting right into the marketing and everything like that it's just completely controlling people's perception uh, and that, that's especially the reason why i thought we should have this conversation because a lot of people just don't have this understanding uh and i think it's coming to light more now uh, but i suppose my question to you is do you think that there's been so much damage done to the population uh, and so much, I guess, backtracking that would need to be done uh, in order to correct a lot of these things. Do you foresee this being something that's uh, kind of a short term? There's going to be a short term solution to it, or do you think it's going to take a while before people start to realize this stuff and then start to make the necessary adjustments in their life and in their nutrition? Shoot, that's a loaded question, man. Um, yeah, like, do you th really? Do you think like because it took about what are we at 2020 now? So we're about 70 years into to this nonsense that's been going on. So do you see, I suppose, the, the forward progression being one more in that direction where we're just going deeper and deeper down that road? Or do you think that people are starting to pump the brakes and really think like, maybe we can start to reconsider how things have been done? I suppose, which side do you feel has more hmm. forward momentum? Well, I guess the best response I have for that one is, here's, here's my thing. 
uh, it doesn't matter like what your core values or life mission or goal is in life. It doesn't matter if you want to be like some computer programmer or some like high end CEO or just whatever, like a popular podcaster. Like, how are you going to do that without being men mentally and physically healthy? Like mental and physical health self sets the base for anything you want to do, no matter what your interest is. So that always has to be a core priority. Because without that, you know, like, how are you going to, how are you going to be an awesome podcaster with like uh, a lot of pain in your lower back or major depression or chronic, how are you going to accomplish all your goals with chronic fatigue issues, you know, or how are you going to, you know, I wouldn't say it's like the main thing to gain the love of your life, but not looking your best, you know, obviously the cover helps sell the product, you know, as you know, in marketing, it's not like everything, but it helps quite a quite a bit. So there's that aspect too, you know? Uh, so no matter, no matter like what you do, what your mission is, like your mental and health, your mental and physical health need to come first. And then whatever time you have available after that, then you kind of pursue everything else. Because if you pursue everything else at the expense of your mental and physical health, you might be able to do it for a little bit, but it's like 100% not sustainable. <clears throat> and even if you end up accomplishing that, you end up making a lot of money, or you end up getting a lot of prestige and everyone is looking up, uh, looking up to you. What does it matter if you just wake up every day, like feeling like you have like a knife to your throat, you know, because you're feeling so rushed and anxious and low on energy and just feeling like crap and having like anger and mood swing issues uh, or having like random joint pain, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's my take on it. Uh, sometimes people would say <clears throat> like, Oh, you know, like all that, pasture-raised operations that can't feed the world or whatever. And uh, just some rough numbers. I always forget these. So I brought like a notebook this time. Just some very, very rough numbers. So before the 1800s, uh, the numbers vary depending on who you ask, but they're around like 90 million to 60 million bison roaming uh, the United States, okay, before they started getting all killed off for various reasons. One, to crush the Native American population. Some people just liked killing them for no reason. Some people killed them for the, the fur and all that stuff. Uh, so let's just say on the low end, we have 60, we bring back 60 million of those bisons. That's on the low end estimate. And you kill about like 30 million of them per year for food consumption. Now, remember, this is an animal that lives in its natural environment, fed a species specific diet, not giving any chemicals, not exposed to any biocides of any sort. So killing three, 30 million of those per year, uh, each bison will give you about, you know, 600 pounds of edible meat and organs. So that would give you about uh, basically 18 billion pounds per year. And then there are 350 million people in the U.S. So that just from that one source alone, each person gets 51 pounds of very high quality meat per year, just from that one source alone. And then you throw in a few regenerative farms in there, you know, you get another 20 pounds of like beef, chicken, pork, goat, whatever, and then throw in some wild fish and you can easily get about like 120 to 130 pounds of high quality, sustainable meat produced in a sustainable agricultural system per individual per year. So those are obviously rough numbers. There's a lot that goes into it. But just to give you the possibility of if it is possible to produce just that meat. In terms of vegetables, I mean, you can get 19,000 pounds per acre in a lot of places. So let's just say you use 1 15th of an acre in a household, you know? So you get 1,000, basically 1,200 pounds per household per year that they can kind of just grow themselves, which is very easy to do with the drip system. And uh, it's very, very little maintenance. So for a household of three, that's basically... 390 pounds per person per year of vegetables, you know, so you can see the numbers add up like very quickly. There's there's a uh, very long book called holistic plant grazing by uh, I think Alan something S I forgot the name of it, but he basically breaks down uh, how it's, how it's able to be done. And it's, it's 100% able to be done very easy to do. Uh, in fact, like one example is when the Soviet union collapsed, uh, I'm from Ukraine but back then it was all one country. What happened in the cities? 
where that depended on centralized agriculture that depended on like the factory farm system. Food just ran out instantly. What happened this year when the whole COVID shutdown happened? Look what happened at the grocery stores. And it's not even like uh, a national emergency. I mean, it was kind of like something, something more serious, but it's not like the country collapsed. You know what I mean? So you can imagine what will happen if the country ever collapses. On our off-grid biodynamic farm, we just had an abundance of food all the time, even through that time. But you go to Moscow, you see maybe like one loaf of piece of bread and, and like 50 aisles worth of food and that's it, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, Joel Salatin speaks a lot about that subject in a lot more detail. But to answer the kind of myth that it's not like able to produce these numbers or not sustainable, the factory farmed model is not sustainable because once again, it depends on monocropping too, because to get all that corn and soy to feed to the animals requires thousands and thousands of acres of monocrops. And if, you, if your listener looks at the world as like an apple, for example, uh, if you shave off like 70% of that apple, that's like all the oceans. So obviously you're not going to be farming there. Then about 15% of the earth's surface isn't farmable. You can't grow, you can't grow crops on there. And then the difference of the rest is uh, basically inner cities, inner, like huge metropolitan areas are grown on the most fertile lands. So obviously you're not going to be farming there. And then the remaining, what you have is anywhere between like five to 8% of farmable land that's actually able to be farmed for food. And the large percentage of that is monocropping. So monocropping, obviously, you don't find a single crop anywhere in nature. So when you do grow a single crop on uh, like a specific field over and over again, it depletes the field of a certain nutrient, certain nutrients rather. And when the field, because a, a certain plant composition requires a certain ratio of bacteria and fungi, which then requires a certain ratio of different uh, microbes, et cetera, et cetera. And they all require like their specific their specific food that the soil provides basically. And when you grow a single crop there, uh, they just depleted of this one nutrient. And when the nutrients are depleted, the specific nutrients required for that plant are depleted, the plant becomes weak. And when the plant becomes weak, nature's way of getting rid of weak plants is pesticides or or pests rather, sorry, pests. Pests come in there, they eat away at the plant Pests don't eat healthy, uh, healthy plants. They can't. So they only eat plants that are not healthy. When pests come in, what does the farmer have to do? He has to use a lot of pesticides or different various biocides, depending on what's going on in that, that location. What's, what happens when the farmer has to use those chemicals? It kills that soil food web even more, depleting the nutrients of that soil even more which then once again makes the plant weaker. Next season, you have even more pests. What happens then? Well, you got to up your biocides. And you can see how it's like not a sustainable system. And it kind of repeats, repeats, and then eventually the soil is dead and you just have like dirt. You don't have, you don't have soil. It's not able to grow, grow anything. And remember I said like only 5 to 8% of the Earth's mass is able to be farmed. So it's not like you have that much to lose to begin with, you know? So, and then once that's gone... Uh, I just, I don't think it's going to be like a very, very pleasant place to be because uh, I don't think people are going to be very happy when they get hungry and uh, like probably not that great of things are going to happen at that point, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the foods might as well be made of plastic at that point because they've been sprayed down so much and they're just completely unnatural. What are your thoughts on like vertical gardens? Uh, do you find them to be effective or, or an interesting solution to, to some of that, to the space issue, I suppose? Yeah, you mean hydroponics? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hydroponics? I have mixed feelings about hydroponics, honestly. The thing so. I've heard mixed opinions as well. well. That's why I'm wondering, because some people are really for it, and then some people are saying it's not a viable solution. Yeah, so I wouldn't say yes or no to either. One important thing, it just depends on what lens you're looking for and the kind of uh, situation you're finding yourself in. So. One lens to look at it from is the holistic lens. So basically you have to look at it. The, the, the earth has been around for, uh, I think 
5 billion years, if I'm not mistaken. I forget these numbers exactly. 5 billion years. So it took 5 billion years and five huge mass extinctions to form basically the soil composition we see today that allows the production of the crops to grow. So it took that long, a very, very complicated evolution that even the best scientists maybe have like a glimpse of understanding of. So it took that long to form the soil composition that gives rise to these crops, that it is able to, to basically give birth to these crops. And what hydroponics does is basically take the soil out of the equation, which is where the plant gets all its nutrients from. And they kind of grow it in like a bucket with a solution and like an IV drip to the plant. So I don't, I couldn't find any like hardcore studies that shows there's like a huge nutritional difference, but just using common sense, I would have to say there is like something skeptical to be about, you know what I mean? Because they're, it's basically like, imagine like me telling you like just drink protein shakes as like your main source of nutrition, you know, like you might be able to go to work, continue to go to work and live for probably a few years, but you're most likely not going to be feeling well, like at all. And then you'll probably develop some comp like health complication issues of eventually, you know? So it's kind of like the same, the same thing, I think. But then I think it all depends. Like for instance, if like Musk or Bezos or whatever have their dream come true and they start colonizing other planets, I think hydroponics can really thrive during the first phases of colonization of those, uh, of those planets. Because I don't, I don't know, maybe I could be wrong, but I don't know how you're going to grow crops there, you know, but in a controlled indoor hydroponics environment, you could grow crops though. And that it could be also a place where GMO crops can thrive during the first phases until like people learn more of how to cultivate crops on that land, if that's even possible. That part, I don't know. I don't know about, I'm just kind of throwing out random ideas. So mm -hmm. just, I think the technology is great. I think it's always like, um, Technology is great, but I feel the application isn't always that great when it comes to kind of greed and the capitalist system. So, for example, like with hydroponics, uh, the U.S. is the only country that allows hydroponics to be certified as USDA organic and sold at the grocery store as USDA organic. Like, from my understanding, like no other country allows, allows it to do that. They do sell hydroponics, but it's sold as hydroponics. In the U.S., most likely, especially in California, I'd say the bulk majority of tomatoes, lettuce, blueberries, strawberries uh, are grown hydroponically, even if it's organic. So um, that's your call to make, but uh, I, don't, I try not to eat that stuff. If it says Driscoll's on it, it's like, it's, uh, from my understanding, in my opinion, uh, hydroponics, grown hydroponically, even if it says USDA organic. Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah it's interesting you mentioned some of this stuff diet is something that it's like i sometimes will overlook it like i'll just go back to getting the cheap food and and you know not really having a, a deep consideration and i find that sometimes if i'm exercising like rigorously or i'm deep into training or i'm programming my thought process is at the time that i can just consume those things and my body will process it and i'll be fine i don't really notice any increase in fat or anything like that in my body because i'm just in shape but I do notice some of the other things you mentioned earlier, which are like the, the joints, uh, joint issues, or the, the joint popping and cracking, or just the random type of mood fluctuations, which I'm usually in check because, uh, I can keep in check because I have a certain awareness of it, but I do see them cross or pass by and I'm thinking, wow, like where is this coming from? Like it doesn't seem like, it, it, it seems like I can't really, I haven't been able to really pinpoint it. And the only thing I've, been able to deduce is that it could be just the food because I could be training rigorously. I could be going, you know, I could fully considered healthy, but at the same time, I have these little minor issues and I, I don't take any type of medications or anything like that, but it, it's just something, it's all the stuff you're talking about is so interesting to me because it's like something that I have to keep getting deeper into as time goes on, especially as, as you know, I get older and whatnot. And I'm sure a lot of people are considering that as well. Uh, you can get away with some of these things when you're young because your body's so, you know, vibrant and it can kind of deal with those things. But as you get older, it really starts to take a toll on you. So, um, again, I'm just super glad you're bringing some of this stuff to light. Um, so what is your diet like right now? Like what do you eat on, on a typical day when you wake up and, and to the evening? And do you, do you practice any form of like intermittent fasting or anything like that with it? With it? 
No, I don't, I don't practice fasting or any of that. I eat um, just two to three meals per day. And um, I don't like cooking or investing too much time into my nutrition. And maybe a lot of your listeners have busy schedules as well. So what I do so it doesn't invest, uh, it doesn't take a lot of time out of my hands is, uh, for example, you don't have to go volunteer at cattle ranches or like pasture-raised egg operations like I did, for example. There's a cool website called um, AmericanGrassFed.org. And uh, that's like the most legit grass-fed certification body out there. So like a third-party certifier. And they do on-site inspections. They do random yearly inspections as well. Like they just show up to the ranch and check out what's going on. They guarantee like 100% pasture raised, grass fed, et cetera, et cetera. So you can go there, scroll to the bottom of the website, click on the interactive map and just click on your state. You could even order out of state too. So like, for example, uh, it varies from operation to operation, but like, um, like AZ grass raised beef, I think the name of it, I order stuff from them a lot. I order stuff from five bar beef uh, quite a bit as well. Uh, and basically how it works is like you order before Tuesday, they ship it out on Tuesday, you get it on Thursday, like at your door for 10 bucks. That's how much the shipping charges. So if you want to save a bit of money, you just order like a couple of weeks worth of meat. You know, you calculate how much you eat on a daily basis, then distribute that over the weeks. And then, uh, all of a sudden you get three weeks worth of food, like boom, right to your doorstep two days later. And this will save you the trip to the grocery store. I do that as well with like small farms. I can go to eatwild.com, go to the top left, I believe, uh, top left tab, and then find a local farm with like vegetables and stuff like that. Uh, get that delivered to your door. Once again, it's a small fee. It's like 10 bucks. And some people will be like, oh, I want to save that 10 bucks. And some people might be really strapped for cash. You need to do that. But take this into consideration. Like you got to drive to the grocery store. How much time is that taking? You park in the parking lot. Then you got to walk in there. Then you got to walk around the store. Plus you're not getting the highest quality stuff at the store, even at places like Whole Foods, for example. Then you got to stand in line. Then you got to pay. Then you got to pack the stuff up in the bag. Then you got to go back to your car. Then you got to put all those bags in your car. Then you got to, you know what I mean? It's like a huge time investment, especially if you're working like eight, eight, even if you're working six hours a day, I would rather you spend that time resting than that 30, 40 minutes that it requires you to go to the grocery store probably twice a week. So it's like really like two hours a week of your time, which is quite a bit of time that you could be spending resting, socializing with friends. It's going to be a lot more benefit to your life than going to the grocery store how, now you got to wear the stupid mask, you know, all these rules, et cetera, et cetera. So they deliver to your door. And uh, uh, for the price conscious people, organ meats are cheap. Stick to the ground meat options or whatever animal you like. It's much cheaper. Uh, also, the price cost thing is something people always bring up with me, like, oh, organic is too expensive. So here's, here's the cost breakdown. Basically, I went to... Uh, like a higher end supermarket sprouts market um, and they sell kind of like a mix of factory farm stuff plus organic stuff and at the supermarket level like basically for a 2000 calorie factory farm diet it's like uh, seven dollars and 77 cents per day but for a 2000 calorie supermarket organic diet it's twelve dollars and 12 cents a day so it's like it is a five dollar difference for sure uh, but take this into consideration too you know um, the average American spends three to $400 a month on non-essential expenses that, aren't, that don't add any value to their life. That includes basically eating out, uh, that includes alcohol, eating out with coworkers during the lunch, subscription services like Netflix, apps, buying apps for their phone, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I forgot the exact amount, but uh, 2,000 calorie organic diet per month is around $330 or so, you know? So if you just took away that non-essential BS, that's not adding like literally any value to your life and substitute it with actually like high quality food, like you would start looking better, which would 100% make you feel better. You know, if you look good, you feel good. You'll start feeling better as well. The average American also spends, uh, according to Paul Cech, uh, five to $7,000 per year on medical expenses related to poor lifestyle and nutrition choices, uh, that's not like genetics. That's mind-boggling. Five to 7,000 a year. That's crazy. 
Okay, I yeah. still have to spend that, but that's, I, I don't doubt you at all. That's, that's nuts, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's those same people that will tell you $3,000 or $4,000 a year for all organic food is too much, but spending five to $7,000 a year on prescription medication and doctor's visits isn't too much. Spending a few hundred dollars a month on shitty fast food with coworkers or alcohol or subscription services, that's not too much. Do you see like the level of brainwashing that has happened in this culture to value that stuff over your own well-being? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that really is the key word, brainwashing, because, and it seems like this indoctrination occurs right from birth. And I'm sure because, you know, obviously <coughs> as a fetus, the mother, depending on what the mother's eating, but it could even be prior to birth because it, it could be just ingrained in that in that child or in that, you know, soon to be child before they even come out of the womb. And then when they come out, this just becomes this natural state of doing or state of being and way of doing things. Um, that's just absolutely insane. Now, you, you mentioned Paul Czech. Uh, so I, I think you, I was looking up some of your stuff. You're Czech certified. Is that correct? Yeah, I took his uh, holistic, uh, holistic courses. Yeah, okay. it was like a few different courses. So. What did that entail exactly? A lot of the topics we're talking about today, you know, like living um, true to your core values, I think is the, is the base. Uh, you know, like you don't want to disconnect between who you are deep down inside and then who you are in the real world. You know, like a lot of people are uh, like a random example would be like, I want to be an artist, but I don't feel safe being an artist in the real world because I feel it's not going to compensate me financially. So instead I'll be like a lawyer. And that sets up like already a cascade of problems right there that aren't going to be evident in the first few years. But if you keep not being true to yourself, it will wear and tear on your psyche and your physical well-being as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you can kind of bullshit other people, but you can't bullshit yourself at the end of the day. You know when you're not living true to yourself. And if you have that kind of disconnect and the wider the gap is, the more physical and mental pathologies that are going to arise throughout your lifetime. Uh, so that's the base. And then obviously he talks a lot about, I got the whole idea for this book from Paul Cech, from that lecture he did, uh, Nutrition and the Dirt Facts. He also wrote a few books on it himself. Uh, I think Under the Veil of Deception is one of them. I forgot the exact titles. It's been a while since I read them. Um, a lot of other stuff. Uh, yeah, so many topics. He covers like so many topics. I don't yeah, want to you know, keep it as by narrowing it down too much, but uh, yeah. like meditation and uh, mm -hmm. being one with nature, connected to nature and the whole seeing yourself as like part of the universe instead of like a separate entity and your, your actions and thoughts also impact, have like a, like a ripple effect, you know, like if you f throw a rock in a pool, eventually like the ripple will hit every part of that pool, you know? So it's kind of like the same, uh, kind of the same philosophy, I guess. So. Mm -hmm. and do you yeah, I like this stuff a lot. So, do you have any particular meditation routine that you, that you practice? I'm trying to get better at it. You know, like I've started implementing it quite a bit this year. I do. Um, I forgot the guy's name, but it's called like body scan instructions, and it's just like 20 minutes of body scan instructions. I forgot the exact person that I'm listening to. Uh, it was just given to me by like a Jator Pierre. He's like a friend of mine, and uh, so I just listen to that. I want to get better at it. I want to try to do like an hour a day. I think that would be awesome. Right now I get in maybe like 20 minutes a day. For me, it's like, um, it's hard for me to sit still. I constantly have to like be doing things and it's, it benefits me in certain aspects of my life, but then also hinders me in other aspects of my life. So I'm trying to find like a good, good balance uh, between those two. Mm -hmm. Well, even 20 minutes a day is, is considerably good. Consider, I mean, a lot of people don't, do anything at all so uh 20 minutes is great and i feel like that might be one of the first steps people could take i mean maybe you can confirm or deny that but it seems like a, this requires a lot of inward looking and, and trying to really determine who that true self is and how you want to express yourself in the world and then kind of make your decisions from there as opposed to it seems like a lot of people rely on a lot of external stimuli and, and that sort of programming or manipulation that happens from from the outside world and then they see themselves completely separate of it as well so it seems like this is a really big psychological issue that that ties in with the food and the nutrition and everything else so um what, what are your thoughts on that anyways 
Yeah, I, I agree with I agree with your perspective as well. So yeah, yeah, I, I have difficulty sometimes just with the meditation myself. But it's a little kind of anecdote. But I, I usually will. I actually moved not too long ago, but I was previously waking up in the mornings and I was doing like a morning meditation uh, in, in the shower. And I was had a, had a shower in a basement and it was a pretty big shower. But I had this thing where I loved to be under the water and I had this stone shower. So I would do this like head down, um, uh, kind of like a child's pose in a way, uh, just kind of like releasing everything. I almost would bring myself to death. I like to do this meditation where I kind of kill myself in a way uh, and, and release everything that I've come to know and understand until that point in, in doing so. And it's, it's like this death of the ego that I try to, to bring myself to. And when I come out of that, I feel like I'm more in tune with that true self. And I have this, this more, uh, this feeling of like wanting to pursue that. Um, so yeah, I, I think meditation is, is a huge benefit for, for anyone listening or watching this uh, in terms of if they're, if they're wondering, if you're wondering where to start uh, in, in terms of making corrections to some of this stuff, um, what would what piece of advice would you give someone that's in their you know twenties or you know, even early thirties that is really wondering like how to start making certain improvements? Maybe they are you know uh, a lawyer or are doing something that's not really fulfilling to them. They are eating a crappy diet and they just feel so overwhelmed and so bombarded with a lot of like media and everything. That's just it, it really is overwhelming to really know how to take that first step. So, do you have any recommendations for someone in that position? Yeah, it's called. Listen to yourself, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. yourself best, you know, I would recommend uh, an easy thing to do. Uh, uh, and I'm still doing this daily myself is like basically come up, start coming up with a short list of little things that make you feel good right away without much effort. So like, oh, I like this shampoo or I like how my haircut looks this way or like I liked working out in the morning versus working out at night. Okay. So I felt better when I was in a relationship with this type of personality or person versus this type. Start writing all those things down, those little, little things. Or like, I like when I wear black shirts versus red shirts, I feel black makes me look better. Okay. And just start doing those because the little things you spend the most time doing during the day. So if you can spend most of the day, at least being happy with these little things, it will set you up in the right direction and start, think, start getting you to think more positively. And then you'll come up with like the bigger picture stuff, you know, but you don't need to, maybe it might be too overwhelming to come up with the bigger picture stuff initially, but Stefan Walensky, uh, I think he's the founder of quantum psychology. I don't know if someone founded it before him, but I read a lot of his stuff is, uh, basically you find out who you are by finding out who you are not first. So you have to do things and then listen to your gut instinct when your body or your soul is telling you this isn't right for me. And then just don't do it. Go try something else, you know? And I, I promise you, if you just keep doing that and copying and pasting, you will find like an algorithm that works well for you. And then you just have to have the guts and stay, stay in that algorithm. Like for me, for example, one of the toughest things was um, not working full time. So that was tough for me. All my friends worked full time. Uh, I thought that was just the norm to work like crazy hours and stuff like that. And I did it six days a week. I was training people like all day, six days a week. And it was cool for like the first year or two. I was making like good money. Money was constantly coming in. I was helping people. Uh, but I just, I felt low on energy. You know, I was rushed to get my workouts in. Um, if I wanted to take a nap midday because I was feeling a little tired, I couldn't do that, which would make me more tired, which would then make me feel more rushed, anxious, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, after two years of doing that, I'm like, you know, this isn't, this isn't who I am or two or three years of doing that. And I went down to part-time and uh, I took a pay cut initially and uh, I was okay with that risk because it was just, I was, I knew if I just lived closer to who I am, who I wanted to be and my values, I would just be overall happier. And sure enough, that is, that is what happened. So mm -hmm. that's like just one example. So yeah. It seems like a lot of people don't really consider their, their own values. It's like, values are imposed on them and then they, they feel like those are their values. And I don't know how that happens. Um, I, I suppose it would have to be from a very young age that they would have to be yeah. in this way. Um, so I suppose having a really supportive upbringing is, is really going to be beneficial for anyone. Um, so I know you've mentioned some reading material, but do you have any other books or audiobooks you would recommend for someone that wants to start off 
on this journey of, of self-improvement and self-realization? Yeah. Um, I'll take, I would honestly take HLC one at the Czech Institute. I don't think for most people it's necessary to do HLC two and HLC three, but HLC one, if you just really master the content in that course alone, and it's like just a few hundred bucks, but trust me, it will make like a huge positive impact in your life. Um, I don't know if they offer it online. I think they do. I think they do in person as well. They have a couple of different schools nationwide. Um, I think that would be a great course to start with. Um, like Stefan Walensky's uh, Dark Side of the Inner Child is a good little book to start with. If you don't like reading too much, you can finish that one pretty quick. Uh, it basically kind of goes over like... Um, as a child, for example, I might not understand these concepts fully too. So take a, take that note. I might not be describing it as well as I should, but basically as a child, uh, let's say when you cry, your dad comes and helps you. So then you associate like, uh, then you have like this observer self that kind of, uh, puts up, puts a character or personality type on you that if, if I'm helpless, people come and help me, you know what I mean? So that helped, that's like a, basically a sock that fits really well when you're a child, you know, it fits well, it keeps you warm. But then what happens is they carry the, these personality traits are solidified and they carry that into adulthood. So now you have like a 30 year old woman that's going to a psychologist and she's wondering why she keeps getting in relationships with people that make her feel worthless, you know, because she's implicitly kind of like indirectly feeling helpless, stupid, so she can have this father figure come and help her because that's what's been ingrained from her in her early childhood. Probably the parents, I mean, they probably wanted the best, you know, obviously the child is crying, they're going to come and help her, but, and it worked well then, but the problem is you're still continuing to try to wear these socks at an older age, this little sock that's probably torn already and broken apart, and you wonder why it's not fitting or helping you anymore, you know? So it's important to identify these things, that way, you know, kind of like, who the puppet master is. And then you just have to, once you see the trance, it can no longer have that power over you. You know what I mean? You could like, oh, now I see what's going on, you know? And then just not do that. You know what I mean? Kind of grow up into a new, like adult character instead of being like a child in an adult body. Yeah, which I think a lot of, a lot of people are, unfortunately. Um, so just to shift gears a little bit, uh, and I, I typically ask a lot of guests uh, on the podcast, but have you had any psychedelic experiences, be it, you know, magic mushrooms or LSD or DMT or, you know, whatever it may be, or even, you know, uh, marijuana, a lot of people think, uh, especially edible marijuana can, can have a psychedelic effect, uh, but have you had any personal experiences with that? No, I've honestly always wanted to try it, but never got around to it. I'm sure one of these days, um, I'll get around to it. I don't have anything against it. I think if it's used in a holistic approach of also, you know, like eating well and making sure to get to the etiology of maybe some problem you're trying to resolve instead of just kind of trying to escape with these substances. I don't know what they're called. Uh, psychedelics. Cause I feel like a lot of people just kind of like don't solve their problems, but they just look for a short term escape. It's the same thing like an alcoholic would do, you know, and I don't think it's going to help you at all in that case, probably just dig you deeper into whatever hole you're trying to get out of. But I feel at the appropriate time with the appropriate strategy could actually have like super positive effects, like great uh, effects on, on your overall well-being, understanding of the universe, um, not waste your time with silly stuff throughout the world, you know, all that stuff. So mm -hmm. probably make you more peaceful person. In most cases, I think sometimes you have yeah, a person yeah. get crazy on that stuff. But and uh, it's it's interesting. I, I um, I've had you know different psychedelics before, but uh, specifically on psilocybin mushrooms, uh, I'm just kind of tying this in with our conversation here. But there was an instance where I had had psilocybin mushrooms, uh, and I don't know how this came to be, but there was like some fast food or something that was kind of put in front of me or presented in front of me. I remember looking at it and thinking that this stuff wasn't food. Like I remember being on in this state of, of you know, uh, whatever you want to call it, this high or whatever. But I remember looking at it and thinking like, this is, it's not real. I had this sense of like, and I had no desire to eat it whatsoever. Whereas when I was not on, on the psilocybin mushrooms, I would normally have just eaten it without any, you know, second thought whatsoever. So 
it's really interesting how it shifted my perception to, to being more of one of like a holistic state of being uh, the second I had tried it. That's why I figured I'd ask you as well, because it seems like a lot of the stuff you talk about uh, would be very conducive with uh, someone that has had those type of experiences because uh, it's like night and day. And it's almost like a dumb moment when, when I've had that. You know, I've, I've been on a substance and I've looked at something that, you know, even when it comes to alcohol, I mean, I, I used to drink a lot of alcohol for a while in my 20s. Uh, and I kind of tapered off of that because it was just so destructive. Uh, but a lot of people don't really realize these things. And then they'll end up going to therapies and things like that, like you mentioned. Uh, and I find that psychedelics, especially psychedelic supported therapy, has been really beneficial for a lot of people in terms of just creating a, a really fast perceptual shift and allowing them to realize their natural state uh, and, and one that's more harmonious with everything in the universe around them and more connected uh, as opposed to being separate and, and consuming those things that are potentially well, most likely damaging to them. So um, yeah, that's why I figured I'd throw out the question to you. Um, but did you have any other closing thoughts for anyone that's listening to this that, uh, that you want to share? Um, no, I think this was a great, great conversation. We covered a lot of stuff. Um, I think those websites, if people want to take quick action, that AmericanGrassFed.org, uh, that way, you know, if they don't want to invest the time of actually working on a ranch and doing all that, that's not for everyone. It's also not an interest to most people, so I understand that. But it's like a good third-party certification. That way, you know you're getting, like, far superior quality beef products than you're probably even going to find, like, at, a, at Whole Foods. They also have pork and chicken, I believe. Eatwild.com top left tab. Um, I honestly hate self-promotion, but I got I to gotta try to do it. Uh, Anti-factory farm. Just a quick note, all your stuff is going to be in the description as well. Okay. But yeah, run, run through it all just for anyone that's listening. That yeah, the Anti-Factory Farm Shopping Guide. That's the book I finished like maybe two years ago at this point. Uh, it has like a bunch of links and resources that are like realistic and not time intensive to do. Uh, like I spent only 10 minutes a day cooking my food for the whole day. And don't go to the grocery store at all. So I'm sure a lot of people can do that even if they're working like 10-hour days, you know? That's like realistic to do. So um, so that's it. Those, those are my takeaways, man. I mean, I was happy to do the show with you. Happy to be on your show to meet you and yeah, stuff. So. Yeah. I'm sure we'll, we'll have some more conversations in the future. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot more to cover as well. And, and I, I've actually done the, the ordering my food uh, in advance. I, I bought like a, a freezer full of meat. It was something like 400 pounds or something, 300 80 pounds worth of meat. Um, oh man, that's a one once a year once a year purchase right yeah, there. Yeah, it, it was it was a year's worth. I think it cost around like just over three thousand, three thousand and something. Um, at the time, I didn't look too far into uh, the particular farm that I ordered it from, but I think I'm going to start going in that direction again. I haven't done that since. That was going back a few years now. Um, I've been doing the silly trip to the grocery store. Actually, I'm in the process right now of. Um, transitioning into hunting because I feel like that's going to be okay. more of a sustainable solution for me. So like at, at the house I'm at now, uh, I have like a little garden going and we grow certain things, but uh, to actually procure meat, I'd like to, to go out and start doing hunting. So I, I picked up a bow, a compound bow recently, and I've uh, been practicing and I'd like to get to that point of being able to actually go out and hunt uh, and then fill my own freezer with my own meat. Because I think, I feel like just, especially now after having this conversation with you, I feel like, I feel like that's one of the, the main uh, ways to, to improve, you know, my situation. And I'm sure it's sustainable for anyone else that's considering doing it as well. Um, but, but I'd like to take this time just to thank you for coming on and having this chat and really enlighten some people on, on some of this information. And again, all of your links are going to be in the description of the episode. So if anyone wants to delve down deeper, uh, I encourage them to do so. Uh, also, if they want to reach out to you on Instagram or anything else, I'll put your links there too. So uh, if anyone's listening or watching this, has any questions uh, for Eugene, please just message him directly. Uh, I'm sure, you know, you'd, you'd be more than happy to, to help and assist them uh, down their path. But uh, once again, thank you for, for taking this time. And I really enjoyed our chat. Cool. Thank you. Good to meet you. Yeah.